You're listening to WCAT Radio, your home for authentic Catholic programming. Steve Ray, author of Crossing the Tiber and Upon This Rock, evangelist, apologist. Welcome to Polycarp's Paradigm, Steve. Thanks for coming on the show. I'm happy to be here. Thank you very much. Met you the other day in a mutual friend's house and glad to join you with this podcast. Yes, yes. And we were just talking and I just want to thank you right off the bat for being a profound influence. Also on my conversion, actually, I remember hearing your story way back when uh, I became Catholic six years ago and and your story was powerful to me then. And then my parents really appreciate all your work that you've done. They've been longing to go on a pilgrimage with you. So hopefully soon they can do that. But thank you for all the work you've done uh, to share your story. And so I'm excited to have you on the show to share your story with us. Well, the way I always say it is I couldn't do anything else. I couldn't not do it. So yes. I, I love uh, ever since we... I had a business, I should say that, and I had a business that was a big one. I had 600 employees. I started it by my out of our dining room, but when I became Catholic, I lost interest in it, and I eventually sold it so I could do what I do now because this is what I love to do. Wow, that's incredible. So bring us back to your upbringing, your childhood. How did you grow up? What was your religious upbringing like, uh, and how did that form you to be a friend of Christ? Well, it all started with my parents, obviously. <laughs> and uh, my mom is 99 years old right now and wow. still lucid. And, and uh, if you went to her and said, um, tell me about Steve's story, she would tell you how my mom and dad got married young back in the beginning of the last century. And they were, they were pagans. They didn't have any religion. They didn't, never went to church. They did not have... Uh, they never read the Bible or been taught to pray. They got married. And she would tell you that the turning point in her life was in 1953 when Billy Graham was in Detroit and she heard him on the radio. And she says to me that, and, and even now, if you ask her, she loves to tell the story. I've heard it probably a hundred times. And she was getting ready to go um, shopping. She'd get in the house cleaned up and getting all the dishes washed. And she got her car keys in her purse. And she said, but then when the radio, all of a sudden this guy came on and he starts telling me all these things I never heard before. And my goodness, I'm a sinner and I'm going to hell. And, but Jesus, he, he didn't, wasn't just a good teacher, but he, God sent him down. He loved me so much that he came and died for me. And, and, and the sins that I have done, he paid for them. And if I would accept that, he all my sins will be forgiven and I'll go to heaven. She said, so she says, I fell on my knees. I dropped the keys in my purse and I started to cry. And I said, dear God, save me. Like you just, that man just said that man on the radio, save me like whatever he just said. Yes. And um, her life was changed forever. And the voice that she heard that day was the Reverend Billy Graham. Wow. And um, my dad also became a, a, a Christian and, but they didn't, um, they didn't have any experience. And so somebody said, you need to get into a good Bible believing Baptist church. And so they joined Joy Road Baptist church in Detroit, Michigan. And after 18 years of miscarriages, hmm. my mom said, now that we found Jesus, please give me children so I can raise them for you. I'll even give them Bible names. I didn't have the saints names. Like you, you're, 
poly, yours is called Polycarp. We'll talk yes. about that down the road, but uh, we didn't have saints. We just had the Bible names. So a year after my mom made that decision, I was born. And wow. she said that was an answer to her prayer. I'm going to grab something real quick here. And yes. this is by, I should have had this ahead of time. But this is my dad's first Bible. And I'm not even going to take it out of this plastic wrap because this is it's really fragile now. Wow. And it's an old King James Version Schofield Reference Bible. And it's if I opened it up, you'd see all oh, it's tattered. The pages are all marked. They're all highlighted. My dad highlighted everything. But the reason I really love that Bible, and it'll never be sold on eBay, is because that's my story. And in that book, uh, Bible in the inside cover, my dad wrote the date he bought that. And it was 1954, April of 1954. And I was born in December of 1954. Oh my math. goodness. Wow. And so this was a my mom and dad became Christians of the Baptist tradition, asked for kids, got kids. My dad bought that first Bible and started studying it just uh, shortly, almost a year after, before I was born. So they said I was a big answer to their prayers. Yes. Always I was an, until I became Catholic and then God misunderstood their prayers. <laughs> wow. Oh my goodness. So, um, and then did you have more siblings as well? Uh, yep. You're the oldest. More Bible names. Yep. Yes. Bible name. I'm Stephen with a PH. I used to get kidded when I was in school. Stephanie, Stephanie. Well, you remember that song by Johnny Cash, A Boy Named Sue? That's where it, it, you might be too young. But there was a song named Boy Named Sue, and I, he hated his dad for name, naming him that, but he said it made me tough and rough and mean. Nice. And so, you know, people call me Stephanie. They learned I wasn't uh, uh, to be trifled with when I was a kid. Yes. You know, my middle name was Kim, so Stephanie Kim. That was the end of that, you know. Wow. But but I was Stephen with a PH because that's the name Stephen in the Bible, the first mm -hmm. martyrs with a PH in the Greek, Stephanos, actually. Yes. My next brother came along, he was David, and then came along Timothy. Wow. So we're all and uh, we were raised, obviously, now to be Baptists. And my mom and dad, you know how converts can be. A lot of times when you're born into a religion or a political ideology or something, you kind of take it for granted and you just kind of slog along. Mm -hmm. But when you're converts, you're energized. You just figured this out. You're excited. And that's why they were, were Baptists. They were like that. And so, boy, we never missed church. And my dad would talk to people about the Bible everywhere he went. And he'd tell them about Jesus. One time we went to the Dairy Queen and uh, it was right in Plymouth, Michigan, right near us here. And my dad saw an old man sitting on the, uh, by the dumpster behind the Dairy Queen. He bought two Dairy Queens, went and sat next to that man and said to him, would you like a Dairy Queen? The guy said, I sure would. Thank you. I'm hungry. My dad says, that's great. And while you enjoy that ice cream, let me tell you about Jesus. Wow. This is the example that I had. My dad, who was on fire, handing out tracts to everybody. Give him wow. anything. He'd give people his last $100 and tell them about Jesus. Now, we Catholics, we are always doing good things for people, but we don't tell them why we do it. And that's a, that's a weakness of ours. My dad yes. would do nice things, but he'd always tell them it's because of Jesus I'm doing this. We ought to do that more as Catholics. But we went to church every Sunday. We never missed Sunday school. Um, Wednesday night prayer meeting, Sunday night hymn singing, all those things we went to. I have pictures of me with my little bow tie and my little shorts and knicker socks and with my mom and dad when I was a little guy going. Now, and, did you have a moment where you, you know, your mom and dad asked you like, hey, are you ready to receive Jesus Christ as your yeah, personal Lord about, and Savior? About four years old. 
Okay. Wow. That's and, early um, for that I, tradition. That, it's a memory that I have. And in fact, I did uh, this week, I did the journey home with Marcus Grodi this week. Okay. I, I don't know when you're going to be airing your show, but it's, this is the last week of January and it, it was on and it'll be, you can watch the YouTube, but I mentioned in there about how I still remember the smell of the green vinyl couch. When my mom said, Steve, I think you're old enough now. See, we didn't believe in infant baptism because the Bible says you got to believe and be baptized. So that's my mom says you cannot be baptized. You've got to believe first and you're too much a baby to do that. But you're four years old now or five. I don't remember which. And I think that you're old enough now to understand. So we're going to kneel down here and we're going to pray the sinner's prayer together. Now, Baptists and Bible people, they have a thing called a sinner's prayer. It's not in the Bible anywhere, of course, but uh, we kind of make that our tradition. And you say this sinner's prayer, I basically goes like this, Jesus, I know I'm a sinner and I'm destined to hell, but you love me so much. Uh, you came down and died on the cross and you took my sins and you paid my penalty. So if I accept your free gift of salvation and believe in you, then I'll go to heaven. I'll be forgiven of my sins. And so my mom prayed that prayer with me. The funny thing was my brother called me right after the show on, on EWTN and said, Steve, I remember that green vinyl couch. I remember that couch. And it was kind of nice to have that memory, you know, reaffirmed. Wow. But that was where I remember that why I remember that and not other things I don't know but it's it was significant and I I asked Jesus into my heart but we also around that time had to start learning Bible verses because we didn't have saints and the devotions and the liturgy and all the things that Catholics have as we saw but all we had was the Bible Bible alone that's all we had so we had to memorize mm -hmm. it so I had to learn first thing is uh, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Oops, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm sorry, Eric. I made a mistake already. It's John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. John 3, 16. You have to say the reference before and after so you know where to find it. In okay, the Bible. thank you. So we Catholics, we know a lot about the Bible. I can start a verse and, I, and most Catholics can finish it for me. Like you are Peter and on this rock, I'll build my church. And we all know those verses but if i say well where is that in the bible the catholic goes oh i don't know somewhere in the new testament so we had to learn that and then we had to learn this eric too this was something that it, um i make all my grandkids do now too genesis exodus leviticus numbers deuteronomy joshua judges ruth first samuel first Saint kings first Saint chronicles ezra nehemiah Esther, job some probably please ask these songs solomon isaiah jeremiah limitation ezekiel daniel Joel, amos obadiah jonah micah name back except and i had zachariah malachi now those are the books of the old testament and even if i made a mistake you wouldn't have known it but i did make a mistake i left there's seven, seven books, books. Yes. Out of that list, but there, you know, I'm 66 years old now, and I memorized that when I was about seven years old. There's no way in the world I can go back and rememorize that with those new books. In it. Right, that, right. That was a Protestant list. Now my grandkids can all mem they can all do that just like I did, except they have the seven additional books from the Catholic Bible in it, and they can do it in 45 seconds or less, or they don't get to go to Israel with me. Wow, that is incredible. So. Obviously, you had good scriptural formation as a child. How did your faith evolve when you became a teenager and then going off to college and those sorts of things? Well, never went to college. But let me start out in my teen years. I grew up very happy family. Mom and dad loved each other. Very religious. It was a happy family. I watched, mm. by the way, it's been very easy to be married because I had a good school. 
Mm, I watched yeah. a mom and dad who loved each other. Dad was ahead of the house. Mom stayed home because this is the way he did it back in Leave it to Beaver days. And um, in, in the old world, which I think is much healthier than what's a lot of what's happening today, for sure. My mom stayed home and we, she was there and dad was always home at five o'clock. And we had a good example of a mom and dad who loved each other and raised their kids together. And, but when I was 15 years old, you know, your old hormones kick in and the old rebellion kicks in where you want to be your own man. And in a way, I think it's God does that to us. He builds in that we break away from our parents and become individuals and adults. And if parents try to hold you back, then it turns into rebellion, but you can kind of work with that independence Mm -hmm. and do it creatively. And I think my parents didn't understand that. So I, I broke away and I, back, it was back in the hippie days. Um, you know, I, now you won't believe it. I'm like you, but at that time I had long hair down on my shoulder, like wow. a lion's mane on my shoulder, right? bell bottom blue jeans. <laughs> yes. I was a hippie kid. I was a, a rebel and I caused my parents a lot of grief from the age of 15 to 17. And I didn't want to go to church anymore because they weren't cool. The kids there and I, I got in with a bad crowd but then at 15, I 17 years old, my mom had Billy Graham on the radio one day. Billy, yes, he's back. Yeah, he's back. And I heard him in the evening. And I had my my um, uh, corduroy jacket on, you know, with long hair, all this stuff. And I heard that Billy Graham and I just sat there and I kind of stepped aside. And I didn't want mom and dad to hear me listening or see me listening to him. And I got tears in my eyes. And I quickly slipped out the back door and I walked down Napier Road. Now, you you probably don't live too far from here, right? Well, I actually live in Colorado. Ah, that's right. You do live yes. in Colorado. So that's a little right. further you from where you are. There. You're <laughs> right, right, right. Well, right where we were, less than two miles from there, okay. is a road named Napier Road where I was raised. And I went down that road. And I looked up to the heavens through the trees and I said, Jesus, I'm only 17 years old, but tonight I'm going to give my whole life to you. And I did. And I, that was the trajectory for my life. I look back, that was the day, the day. It wasn't when I asked Jesus into my heart, like most Baptists will say, I accepted Jesus, my Lord and Savior on May 3rd, 1955, whatever. And I was saved on that day. Well, to me, I look back at the day when I walked down that road and told Jesus, I was going to give my whole life to him. Mm. That set, you know, like a rocket ship taken off you see mm-hmm. the trajectory. You got a goal. And that was my goal. And I've never missed. I mean, I've never failed to have that as my goal. Some days I live it better than other days, right? right. but it's always been my goal. That's been the driving force of my life. And I was lucky enough to find a great woman who shared that with me. We've mm. been married 44 years now and I love her more now than when I first met her. But um, how I met her in that story is kind of interesting if you want to discuss yes, that. But I know you yes. want to get into the Catholic part. Well, let's, I love a little romance here. All right. Well, after I found Jesus for myself out on Napier Road, I was 17 years old and I had one year left of high school. So the next that was in the summer. So I went to the high school that year and I was going to get everybody saved. I was totally devoted to Jesus Christ. I went in that school, and this was Plymouth High School. We had 2,000 people graduate that year, and there was drugs and sex in the hallways, and it was just bad times, very bad Mm. times. 
And I walked back into that school, still had my long hair and my bell-bottom blue jeans, but I was now an intentional disciple of Jesus Christ with the intention of getting everybody else to be the same thing. First day of school, some guys came up to me and said, Steve, we've just met this cute little girl. She's 15 years old, just moved here from California, Southern California. She lived right near Disneyland, Disney World. And, I, and they said, you got to meet this girl because she just found Jesus too. Now, she was raised nominal Presbyterian. That nominal okay. means that you talk, but you, you, know, you don't get excited about anything. I mean, you, you just, you kind of go to church and that, but don't, don't ever get excited about it. Don't ever right. uh, open a Bible or anything or somebody think you're a, a holy roller. Well, she had met some folks at Calvary Chapel out there. And that church today has many different congregations, and they boast that 80% of their members are ex-Catholics. So there are a congregations made up of 80% former Catholics who have a job of going out and making more former Catholics. And for you people listening, their targets are your kids and your grandkids if they don't know the faith. Oh, my goodness. Well, wow. she got excited there. She found Jesus in a Bible study. So I met her in the hallway at Plymouth Canton High School. And she was excited about meeting Jesus, and I was, and we connected, and we made friends, and she told me that day, she said, that was a, I was only 15 years old, and she said, God spoke to me that day, and she said, I'm going to show you a picture here, I think I have one here, yeah, I do, this is the girl I met back then, right there, oh, wow, That's from awesome. Costa Mesa, California, she was 15 years old. And she said God spoke to her that day for the first time in her life and said, that's the man you're going to marry right there you're talking to. Wow. When did she reveal that to you? After we got married. <laughs> yeah, that's good. That's good. <laughs> and uh, four years later, we got married. And now wow. we have, and we, we had a, a, con, not a contract, but, you know, business plan kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. And we said, okay, we're going to, and she had a nice, wonderful family too. So we, we had it made. We didn't come from a dysfunctional families. We came from solid families, which then made it very easy for us to move into doing how we had seen our parents live. Yes. And so we said, we're going to make two business plans, simple plan. Number one, we're going to prove to the world that a man and a woman could stay married for a lifetime and love one another with Jesus at the center of their life. Mm -hmm. Number two. We're going to prove to the world that we can raise good kids who love Jesus and pass it on to the next generation. Yes. We were evangelical Protestants at the time. We knew nothing about the church or sacraments or that marriage was a covenant. We just thought it was kind of a contract, you know, is it's a, an agreement between us. God smiles upon it, but we had no understanding of the beauty of marriage and the wow. giving of each other, one another to each other. But we still made that our goal in life is to prove to the world we could stay married and love each other for a mm -hmm. lifetime and have kids to do the same and pass it on to the next generation. Well, thanks be to God, it happened. And um, let's see if I got another picture here for you. That's the clan right there. Wow. There's now 28. I'm trying to make sure. Can you see it good? Yes, yes, yes. It's good. There's 28 of us. And I can say that God answered our prayers and our commitment was honored both by Janet and I and by God. So we have four great kids and spouses who all love the Lord and are great families. And I got 18 grandchildren now. The two wow. oldest are 18 years old. The, just to summarize this part of the story, mm -hmm. if you're young, go out and walk down the road at night and look up at the sky and realize how small you are 
how short your life is, before you know it, you're going to be worm food. You're going to be dead before you know it. And ask yourself, knowing that life is going to be short, how am I going to live my life? What am I going to do? How, what kind of choices am I going to make today? Because I'm being prepared for the future and eternity. Go out and tell Jesus you're going to give your whole life to him, and he will not let you down. Right. And I'm 66 years old, and I can tell you he's never let me down for one day. Yes. And I love that, you know, I'm reminded of the book of Revelation. You know, he stands at the door and knocks, and you let him in. And yeah, you didn't know all about the Catholic Church and the sacraments and all these things, but you gave him an opening to where you could start your friendship with him, yep. and then he could walk you the rest of the way. And hopefully, I'll tell you another good glory. story. Yes, yes, yes. You don't seem to be in a hurry here. That's good. I, re- I liken it when I give talks. I liken it to God coming down the road and he sees a sign in front of a house, room for rent. He mm. goes and knocks on the door and a guy comes. He says, uh, hello, I'm God. And I would like to rent the room you have for rent. And the guy, he said, I'd like to see it. The guy takes him up, shows him the room, looks nice. God says, I'll take it. And he says, and uh, by the way, I'd like to have the room next door too. And the guy says, oh, no, 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 that's not for rent. Just this room, I need a hundred bucks a month. This room's a hundred but after a while, God keeps saying, you know, I'd really like that other room. And, and the house owner says, you know, I, I don't really use that other room. And he's not been any problem. And I could use $200 a, a month. So, okay. All right. You can have that room too. Well, over time, God keeps saying, I, I'll take it. I like what I see. And pretty soon he keeps getting another room and another room. And the guy is realizing, hey, the more rooms I give God, the better I am. I make, I'm more happy. I'm more fulfilled. And he's easy to live with. I love this. And next thing you know, he gives God the whole house. Now he is more full of joy. And the house is bigger than it ever was before. And it's more his than it ever was before. And it's full of joy. And he says, wow. I really am glad I gave the whole house to God. And that's what I challenge people. You should give your whole life to God. Too many of us have, I'll give God this side of me. Mm, Here's my favorite sins. I'm not going to give up that. And what do you mean? I'm going to let him rule, be the Lord of my life. Are you crazy? But the more we give our life to him, the more free we are, the more joyful we are, and the more fulfilled we are. So give him your whole life. Open up every door. Let him have every room in your life. Wow. That's awesome. And so you were obviously on fire for your faith, evangelizing all your fellow students. When you started your business and started your family life uh, with your wife, did you want to maintain like preaching the gospel to everyone or like, how did that look like? And then uh, did you yeah, end up like leading Bible studies and all of that? And then what was the first thing, of course, that like initially maybe started you questioning your own faith? In, in the Protestant world? Well, that's a big question. Actually, that's a big 10 questions. Yes. Um, I started my business. Uh, here's how it started. My dad told me never go to college. It's a waste of time and money. He said, I, I see PhDs rolling barrels around down at Ford's where he worked. He says, what you should do is when you get out of high school, just start your own business and make money off other people's labor. Well, I would, during high school, I'd, I, I never thought about what I was going to do. I was too much of a troublemaker, you know, up until the last year. So all I, what I did for pocket money is I did janitorial work. I, some guy hired me and I worked with him on weekends and a couple of evenings to make pocket money to pay for my car and gas and taking girls out and stuff. And um, 
so when I graduated, I said, well, what can I do to make a living? And, and I thought, well, I know how to clean offices. So I went out and bought a vacuum cleaner and a mop bucket and ringer at a garage sale. And I made homemade business cards. I just took three by five cards, cut them in half, wrote my name and phone number on them. And I went door to door and started a janitorial company. And then we did, I did it out of my house. And then I got married and my wife answered the phone and I did the work. And before you know it, we've got 600 employees and we're doing $12 million a year in sales. Wow. And we grew it. And I did that business. The reason I started that business precisely, and I did not go to college. I made all of my kids go to college. They all went to various schools. They all graduated. We homeschooled our kids too, by the way. All they homeschooled mm. them all the way through high school. And they all went through college at, with 4.0 averages. So if anybody thinks homeschooling is going to destroy your kids, think twice. If you do it right, they're going to be the best students in college. And they're going to, all of my grandkids are now being homeschooled too, mm. by the way. Well, I I started that business precisely so that I would be in charge of my own life. I love independence. I'm a rebel at heart, a nonconformist, and I was wow. not going to have somebody tell me what time I was going to start work and when I could break for lunch and when I could have vacation. I said, I'm going to make those decisions. And the only way I'm going to make those decisions is to be unemployed or to be my own boss. And I want to study the Bible. I want to do Bible studies. I want to do evangelism. And if I own my own company, I'll be free to do that. And that is precisely one of the two reasons. One is because my dad told me to do that and it was a good idea. But the other reason was so that I would have time and control of my own destiny so that I could study the Bible and teach and do evangelism, which mm. is what I did for the whole first years of our marriage. That kind of then worked into homeschooling too, because homeschooling is evangelizing. You're evangelizing your children for the next generation. And it, you don't just do it haphazardly. There's a lot of effort into raising children if you're going to mm -hmm. do it right. So that's how we, um, our new married life, when we started homeschooling, by the way, we moved, it was illegal in Michigan when we started, 1980, our daughter was born in 1977, we were born in 76, she was born in 1977, our first daughter, Cindy, my wife said, I'm not going to send her to schools, I'm not going to give her away for the best eight hours of her day, I'm going to have the best eight hours of her day and kids are graduating from public schools and they can't read, I'll guarantee she's going to read if she graduates from homeschool. And the kids in the schools are being told that, they're, that they crawled up out of the muck through a serious process of evolution. And my kids will know that they were created by God in his own image. Mm -hmm. So we decided to homeschool, but it was illegal in Michigan. Children are being taken away from their parents for educational neglect, and some parents were going to jail over it, and their kids wow. are in foster homes. People today don't realize how easy they have it, how wonderful it is, but some of us pioneers, we were the ones that suffered through the first years of this pioneer effort. We were kind of like the covered wagon people that went out west. We did that with homeschooling. We bought an old house out in the country, five acres, an old farmhouse, and we disappeared. And we raised our kids out there on a farm. We had goats and chickens and rabbits and a cow and ponies. And we had a wonderful life. The kids were in Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts, dance class, all these things, but very on the low down. And so for the first five to eight years of our kids, we lived, we had a lot of friends who were also doing the same thing, but we mm -hmm. lived underground until it became legal. And then, then it was okay to... Uh, to let people know what you were doing, but our kids never suffered for it. They're the most well-adjusted kids in the world. In fact, other people whose 
raising kids at the same time, whose kids all went into drugs and had kids out of wedlock and stuff, said, we should have followed your example. We used to tease you and say you were going to ruin your kids' lives. But now that we look back, we should have followed your example. Wow. So that was our early life. I taught a Bible in a lot of different churches, um, evangelical Presbyterian churches, Baptist churches. So on. One of the interesting things of our life when our kids are small is my wife and I packed up everything, sold everything that we owned except for my books and a few things. And we moved to Switzerland. Really? And there was a, uh, my favorite evangelical Protestant philosopher, author, theologian, evangelist was there named Dr. Francis Schaefer. And he was very popular. Time Magazine had an article on him back in the early 80s that he was the missionary to the intellectuals. And people from around the world came, hippies and long hairs and things there, to come and talk to him because he was a philosopher. And he talked about the truth of Christianity. It's not just faith alone. It's not just feelings. This is true. It's empirically, evidentiary true. It's objectively true, historically, philosophically and he just he made it so that i could be rationally and intellectually a christian not a mm -hmm. catholic yet but he set the stage for us to become catholics because he he taught us that there was such a thing as truth and if one if 2 plus 2 is 4 it's not 5 and if right. christianity is true then all the other philosophies and worldviews and religions are not true which sounds very bigoted today, doesn't it? Who are you to say Christianity is true? Of course it is. It is true, and it is superior to all the other philosophies and religions, which may have elements of truth, but they are not the truth. Christianity mm -hmm. is, and its best form is in the Catholic Church. Well, we didn't know any of that then, but I, we sold everything and went and moved to Switzerland and lived in a chalet with our kids in diapers to study with him for a year. And then we traveled all over Europe studying our Reformation history. I wanted to learn everything I could about Martin Luther and John Calvin. And we even at, the, at that, we did this twice, by the way. We came home for two years and then went back and did it again. And we rented a little car over there, Volkswagen, and we traveled all over um, 13 countries, 8,000 miles. And wow. we went at that time back when it was communist Soviet Union, we crossed through Checkpoint Charlie with our kids in the car. And we had money and Bibles and medicine that were stuffed up under the seats. Every inch of that car was stuffed with contraband. Had those, had those Soviet East German soldiers stopped us, we would have been dead. The car right in front of us as they funnel us into Checkpoint Charlie in East Berlin to go into uh, communist East Germany, and then we went through Poland and Czechoslovakia and came back out into Austria. But when they funneled us through that entryway into through Checkpoint Charlie, the car in front of us, they took one hour. We sat in our car for one hour. They took that car in front of us apart. They took the seats out. They took the dashboard out. They took the floorboards out. They looked for anything that was contraband. Then they put the car back together and I let them go through. Now we pull in and every inch of my car is full of stuff. They saw the kids. They saw the nine suitcases on top. They looked at us, the dogs, the police dogs are barking electric fences. There's no backing out of this at that point. And I said, dear God, make us invisible. And they looked at us and they waved us through. Wow. We took all of that contraband stuff into Poland, into the Christians there. And we distributed the medicine and the Bibles and the books and all of that stuff to the Christians there. 
And um, that was that was one. I mean, our life is so full of crazy things we've done. That's but that, amazing. We, we did that twice, going to just Europe and spending long periods of time over there, driving around. My business. See, this is my the freedom of owning your own business. I didn't have much money, but we didn't need a lot of money. We live very, very, very low key, and we bought loaves of bread and cheese and tomatoes, and we ate a lot of um, things like that, just simple things. But we were yes. able to drive all over Europe for those two big trips. And, but all of that set us up to becoming Catholic because being with Francis Schaeffer mm -hmm. taught us there was such a thing as truth and objective truth. And you can't have your own truth. You can't say, Eric, well, you have your truth and I have my truth. And we're just going to have to agree to disagree. Well, I'll, I'll agree with you. And I'm not going to agree to disagree because two plus two is four. It's not five and it's not three. And I'm not going to concede that all truths are equal and we all just let each other, can't right. we all just get along? No, we're not going to all just get along. I'm going to impose myself on you. And if I don't, the real world will. <laughs> there is real truth out there. And I love you enough and care about you enough to confront you about that. Mm -hmm. So anyway, that, that kind of set up the whole stage for us to be Catholics, because when we came back, we settled back into normal life. And that's kind of when, because of the whole idea of there being a truth, I wrote a family history. I wrote a genealogy of our family, too. It took me a year, all the pictures I could get together. And I wanted to do that for my kids so that they would know who they were, where they came from, and, and their history. Mm -hmm. But when I did that, I said, this gives us a roots. It gives us roots in the real world, who we are who our relatives are in the family tree. And we went back, I had 1400 names in our family tree between my wife and I. Wow. And, but I realized I'm part of another family. I'm part of the family of God, the church. I wonder what my genealogy is there. Hmm. And that took me back to the beginning. What did my first ancestors in that family believe? Who were they? What was their practice? How did they live? What were their names? How did mm -hmm. they, how did I get from here from where they were? Well, that took me to starting to study church history. And then the whole ball of wax started to melt. You know, that's where yes. we really started to hit that. That was 1993. And before you jumped into that, what was your, because you, you had just gone through Europe studying the Reformation. What was your perception of the Catholic Church? And what was your perception of the Reformers? Like that they saved Christianity and like... Absolutely. Yeah. Martin Luther was my hero. I should have brought it up with me. I Sometimes when I do these podcasts, I say, oh, shoot, I should have thought ahead and had these... No, that's okay. ...show and tell stuff. But I used to... I had Martin Luther, Luther t-shirts made up. Wow. I have it still in the basement and I... I, and I, th I don't think it'll fit me anymore, but, um, wow. but I, it's still, I have it. It's Martin Luther. It says Luther in his picture. And I, he was my hero because he brought real Christianity back. You see the Catholics. And I was very good at converting Catholics. And I knew the right verses to use against them. Mm. And I could still do it again today if I tried. Wow. Catholics don't know their Bible. I'll give you an example. In the Bible, you you believe that Mary was without sin? Yes. And do you believe that she was conceived without the stain of original sin and she never sinned in her life? Yes. Well, I want you to finish a verse for me. 
in the Magnificat, which is inspired by the Holy Spirit, sung by Mary herself. She says, I rejoice in God. My, my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Did you just say Mary needs a Savior? Yes. Only sinners need saviors. So if Mary needs a savior, that must imply that she's a sinner. Even she says that by herself under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So who needs a savior but a sinner? You Catholics are wrong. You need to leave the Catholic Church and become real Bible Christians. Now, what I'd like to do, Eric, is set up a Bible study with you next Tuesday, and I'll show you all the other errors of the Catholic Church. And we'll get this, and I'm going to teach you the Bible because you don't learn the Bible. Your priest talks about other things and so but you've never been taught the Bible. I bet you don't even know what born again means. So I'd like to have a Bible study with you, and I'll educate you about the Bible, and you'll become a real Christian. Wow. You're not going to get me. You're not going to get me. <laughs> now, to answer the question of did Mary need a Savior, just I don't want to leave people hanging. Yes. yes, she did. We all need Saviors. Mary is a daughter of Eve. She was subject to sin like the rest of us. But by a unique act of God, based on the merits of her son, she was preserved from the stain of original sin, and she remained sinless through her life by the grace that was given to her. The way I use that in my movie on Mary if um, I don't know if you've seen any of my movies or not, but I've done nine movies on the whole story of the Bible filmed on location all over from Iraq to Turkey, wow. Jordan, Israel, Syria. Yesterday was the, uh, was the uh, feast day of the conversion of St. Paul. Well, I filmed that in the movie on St. Paul. I was in Damascus. I came down the wall of Damascus in a basket myself like Paul did. Wow. But, but my point, being is that in the movie on Mary, the way I explained Mary's uh, needing a savior was I make a mud puddle and I'm walking towards the mud puddle. And right when I do that, I quote that verse I just did with you. And I said, but there are two ways to be saved from a puddle of mud. And when I say that, I trip over a log and I fall headfirst into the mud puddle. And I really fell headfirst into that mud puddle. Wow. Then a hand reaches out and pulls me up. And I say, the first way to be saved from a puddle of mud is to be pulled out and cleaned up. And then it rewinds. And I'm coming at the mud puddle again. And I say, and I trip again and I fall, but a hand stops me and pushes me back. I say the second way to be saved from a puddle of mud is to be prevented from falling in in the first place. Mm. Mary needed a savior. God was her savior and he saved her from sin in a unique way by preventing her from falling into this. So mm -hmm. see what my point is, is that these Protestants, they're very good at using the Bible against Catholics. I used to do it. I know how to do it. Mm -hmm. But in reality, the Bible is a Catholic book. And when it's understood in its fullness and its wholeness and in its context, it's a Catholic book. And it's ours. And the arguments are all on our side. Yeah. Was there something that inspired you in your upbringing or like maybe your formation at the Baptist church that led you to be sort of anti-Catholic or oh, yeah. needing to reach out to them? Um, that was the way I was raised. I was taught that the yeah. Catholic church was the whore of Babylon. Wow. Revelation chapter 17. The Pope was the Antichrist. And you had everything upside down. See, we had the Bible. You have tradition. We have, we pray to God. You pray to dead saints. We yeah. say you get saved by faith alone. You Catholics try to get saved by your works. Everything you have is upside down. And therefore, you are anti-Christian 
You are a cult, actually. You, and one of the most dangerous because you use the same books we use and you use the same words that we use, but you twist them around in this nefarious way. Mm. Because if you can keep people in the Catholic Church, you can keep their money and you can keep control of them and they never really get free and learn how to be really saved. So it's our job to go in and get those poor Catholics saved so they can be free wow. of that dominating culture and the traditions of men. Wow. So when you first started your exploration into the early church fathers, were you just shocked? It happened this way. I didn't start to read them right away. Okay. A couple things happened. We started to see the problems with Protestantism. Okay. We didn't see anything good about the Catholic church yet, but we started to see the problems with Protestantism. And the way I put it is, Sometimes you have to realize you're sick before you go see a doctor. Us guys are like that. Women tend to go see doctors. They don't, but we're kind of like, I don't need to, I don't need to go see the doctor. You know, something goes really bad, then your wife drags you in. And so it's the same with this. I, you don't realize you need a doctor until you get really sick. And I didn't realize that we needed to look more deeply until I realized the problems within Protestantism. Protestantism was sick. It had an incurable disease and we weren't going to fix it because if you fixed it, it would be Catholic. But I didn't know that at the time. One day my wife, and the three things when I give our conversion story, the three things I say are that, that were big problems is what is worship? What's the authority binding upon a Christian? What is the authority that controls our life? And how many churches did Jesus start? And the first one started when we were coming home from the church service, the Baptist preaching service one Sunday morning. And my wife said, she started it all, actually, my wife did. Wow. She said, I can't listen to that man preach anymore and call it worship. Something's missing, but I don't know what it is. Take a guess what it was that was missing. Something called the Eucharist. Eucharist. Yes. Yeah. The sacrifice of the mass. It. And as we started to, that, that triggered us because we knew that preaching wasn't worship. There was there was something missing in the big picture. Now there, Charles Haddock Spurgeon, and on my laptop I'm using here, I have 66 volumes of his sermons. He's a Baptist preacher from the late 1800s in England, probably the most famous Baptist preacher of all time. I have 66 volumes of his sermons. Oh. And he said one time in one sermon, he said, there is no form of worship that is higher than a good sermon. Let that sink in for a minute. There's no form of worship that is higher than listening to a good sermon. Now, Janet said, there's something wrong with that. And I know there's something wrong with it, but I don't know what it is. Well, that started her on a quest. And at, at the same time, I loved the Bible. I already told you, I studied and loved it. But I realized as we got together with all of our evangelical friends, we could not agree on everything the Bible said. Who's the final authority? When we get into a debate, who, who resi- who's the arbiter? There's no Pope in Protestantism. Which wouldn't be too much of a problem if it was just minor issues. Right. But we are talking about like, no, there's big issues like the nature of salvation and can you yeah. lose it or not and stuff like that. Yeah. And is Jesus going to come back in a rapture or not in a rapture? And is it now or in a thousand years? And should I get my baby baptized or not get my baby baptized? These are huge things. I remember going to a Presbyterian church where they changed the creed to say, we believe in one holy Christian an apostolic church. And they said, we're going to have baptisms this next week. 
if you want, if you believe in infant baptism and you want your infants baptized, then come to the nine o'clock service. If you don't believe in infant baptism and you want to have adult baptism, you come to the 11 o'clock where we're going to baptize adults. So Christian now, relativism at its finest. Yes. Now my, my thought was to my wife, I said, well, doesn't God have an opinion on that? What, what, why do we have two very different views? We're reading the same book. We're reading the same Bible. Why is it that we have such differing views? So this is just one example of these kind of things. Well, anyway, you may know him, Al Cresta. Mm -hmm. You heard Al Cresta. He's on Catholic radio. Yes. He used to be on Protestant radio in Detroit, and he had his own church. And him and I and my wife and his wife, we're all best friends. We homeschooled our kids together. We met in 1983. We're best friends. He's an evangelical pastor. He's the number one talk show host on Protestant radio in Detroit. He used to come out to our house. He lived in a bad part of Detroit, and he used to come out to our house in the country. We had horses and a pool and, you know, kind of a nice place out in the country. So they'd come out at least two or three Sundays a month to be with us. And we'd study the Bible together. We had this going on for over a decade. And then one day he says to me, Steve, I'm going to, I think you need to know that uh, Sally and I have decided to go back to the Catholic Church. And my first thing out of my mouth was, Al, that is the stupidest thing I've ever heard in my life. You're way too smart to be a Catholic. Wow. And we decided we weren't going to talk to him about it for a while and that we would do our homework and we would talk again after a while and convince him he's wrong. Best way to do that, of course, you know, I have 20,000 books in my house. He had 40,000 books in his house. I can't go to the Bible because him and I had studied in bantered over the Bible for over a decade together. And I can't go to the Bible to try and prove him wrong because he's going to have his favorite verses and I've got my favorite verses. And But if I go to the early Christians and, to, and prove to Al that the early Christians, the very first ones were really Protestants, and they only got corrupted with Catholic stuff in the Middle Ages, then I could convince him that he's really following a church that's of the traditions of men and getting back to the pure pristine church of the early Christians. So I start reading the early Christians. Polycarp, for example. Yes. Ignatius of Antioch, Clement of Rome, Justin Martyr, Irenaeus of Lyon, the Didache, the Shepherd of Hermas. All of those are in my book. If people want, you mentioned it early on, I think, but my book on crossing the Tiber. This is, I crossed the Tiber. That's the river that goes through Rome. And I crossed the Tiber. It's a symbolic way of saying I came home to Rome. Mm -hmm. And in here, I go through all of those church fathers and how they twisted my arm behind my back and dragged me into the Catholic church, kicking and screaming because I didn't want to be a Catholic. But, but I was a rebel. I was countercultural. And there came a point in time when we're going through this whole thing of arguing and fighting over it and discussing all the issues. My wife and I decided to do everything together when we got married young, and we stuck to that even through this. We would study Mary and then Peter and then purgatory and then this and then that, one topic at a time. And they all melted it down in front of us as we really looked at them honestly and in light of the earliest Christians. Mm. And I said, why do we care so much what our pastor says today, 2,000 years removed, when I can go back and read the pastors who knew the apostles right. and see what they thought? I can actually bring Polycarp, Irenaeus, Ignatius, Clement of Rome, first century guys, into my living room and interview them. How do I do that? With books. So we brought these guys all in. We invited them into our home for a year 
and we interviewed them. We, get, we had detailed discussions with these first ones, that, and they would have said, even Polycarp, that they had the words of the apostles still ringing in their ears. Mm. They didn't have a New Testament yet. What did they have? They had the apostolic tradition that they had heard and they had watched with their own eyes. How did they live? How did they put Christianity into practice in daily life and salvation in the church in the way you get saved? Well, if you are a Protestant, I'm just going to put out a warning right now for any Protestants listening, a serious warning. If you do not want to be Catholic, do not read the church fathers. Stay as far away from the church fathers as you possibly can because they're very subversive reading. It's like a virus. You start reading the fathers of the church and you catch the virus and there's no way you're going to get rid of it until mm -hmm. you finally succumb to it. I'm saying this all tongue in cheek. <clears throat> nice. Because many, many, many thousands of us have become Catholics because we decided to learn our history, do the family genealogy, go back to see what the very first Christians taught. And I discovered over a period of time that those early Christians were not proto-Protestants. They were all distinctly Catholics. Yes. So what, what about like St. Polycarp? If you want to just take a few minutes to talk about him, why is he so important? And like, what, what contribution, what, what did you hear from him or from the other saints back then that was like, okay, this is so Catholic. What, what were some of the elements in their writings that like really stood out to you? Polycarp was known across the whole Asia Minor, which is Turkey of today, the size of Texas, huge area. He was known as the destroyer of our gods. Wow. The Roman gods. Let's do a little timeline. You start yes. with Jesus. Jesus teaches John. John the Apostle. John teaches Polycarp. Polycarp teaches Irenaeus. This is how close these guys were. Irenaeus is fantastic. Irenaeus said things that I just could not argue with, and I had to become a Catholic. Now, Polycarp, we have one letter, mm -hmm. and we have the story of his martyrdom. I've been there, by the way, to that place in Smyrna, which is today called Izmir in Turkey. And it says that when they martyred him, they were going to burn him at the stake. Well, let me, I'll back up a little bit. He was obviously a, a son of John the Apostle, a spiritual son of John the Apostle. And Irenaeus says that I used to sit at the feet of Polycarp and I listened to him tell me everything that he learned from the Apostle John. Wow. And he said, I didn't write it down because I wrote it in my heart. He said it was much more tactile and rich in my mind and in my heart than if I had written it down with paper and pen. And I used to sit there as a boy and listen to Polycarp relate the stories of John and Jesus. Wow. And, and there are some stories that they tell that are extra biblical that aren't part of the Bible, but they're fascinating stories when you go back and read these writings of these guys. Well, they Polycarp lived to be an old man, 86 years old. He was one that was in, baptized as an infant because he said, 80 and six years have I served my Lord, which means that he was from his birth. He didn't say, you know, I converted when I was 26. 80 and six years have I served him, meaning he was baptized as an infant and raised to be a Christian. 
I always used to think polycarp meant many fish, you know, that's yeah. polycarp. What kind of name is that? But his parents named him Polycarp because they expected a lot from him. Poly means much, many. Carp means fruit, one who's going to bear much fruit. That's what mm -hmm. his name means. And when he's an old man, the governor brought him into Smyrna, which is the city, into the theater. The theater is no longer there, but I discovered where it was when I was there by asking a lot of questions, but it's been covered over by houses and things now. But he says, deny your Christ. And he said, I will not. You're an old man, Polycarp. You're 86 years old. Consider your age. If you deny your Christ, I'll let you walk. He said, I will not. 80 and six years I have served him, and he has done me no ill. How can I turn away from my Savior now? He said, I can have you burned at the stake, Polycarp. Polycarp says, do what you will. I won't turn back on my savior now so they built a big pile of wood and they put him on those flames there and they began and they said he said you don't need to tie me down or chain me to the post i'm not going anywhere this is my way to god and they built the fire and it didn't burn him and the witnesses said that the flame enveloped him like a sail if you watch the movie that I made, I'm actually burning at the stake and the flames are burning around me and I'm talking through the flames and I pray the prayer that he prayed while he was at the stake with the flames. So they saw the flames go around him like a sail and they smelled the smell of fresh baked bread, which is very Eucharistic. Mm -hmm. After the flames went down, he didn't die. And the soldiers came up to kill him, but it was too hot. They couldn't get near after the coals burned down, they came with a knife and they stabbed him and a dove flew out. This is eyewitness accounts saw this. And that dove could be an image of his spirit leaving or the Holy Spirit in him and his life leaving him at that. And the flame and the blood went and it went into the coals. So that's the story of Polycarp, very heroic man. And my son, when we became Catholics, my son read that story, or I read it to him. He was 13, says, Dad, my saint is going to be Polycarp. Mm -hmm. So I've been to all those places. And when we were there in Smyrna, there's a church there, the, the Cathedral of Smyrna. There's very, very few Christians in Turkey, only 80,000, 60,000 Christians in a population of almost 90 million, only 60,000 Christians. Wow. And most of them are um, the leaders and the priests are, are Italians. And I remember when we were filming, we went into that church where Polycarp, and it's a beautiful church inside. You have to watch the movie. It's called Apostolic Fathers Handing on the Faith. And this is uh, it right here. It's called Apostolic Fathers Handing on the Faith. Yes. It's a 90-minute DVD with a study guide, and it's all filmed on location. I'm trying to show it. There's no good. There we go. Yes, yes. I think I have seen that, That's and I loved it. And there's five, five um, apostolic fathers that we follow their lives all on location, mm -hmm. all through Turkey and Israel and Italy and so on. And when we were there, I went to that church and we filmed inside of it because it's beautiful with all those beautiful paintings of Polycarp burning at the stake and so on. And mm -hmm. I said to the bishop, is there any of the bones left? Because the story says, the eyewitnesses say that after they burned him, the believers they went and collected his bones and they treated them as more precious than gold and silver and precious diamonds, jewels. They treated his wow. bones. 
So I went to the bishop and I said, are any of those bones left here? He says, come with me. And he took me back to the sacristy and he pulled out a reliquary and he said, this is a piece of his skull. Wow. That's incredible. I cannot wait to go. Because as you know, this is Polycarp's paradigm. My patron saint is Polycarp. My confirmation saint. Uh, I just love his life because he's such an example of, yeah, he never abandoned Christ and he was boldly witnessing to Christ to the very end. And he lived a holy and godly life all throughout. Like he, The destroyer of their gods. Yes, yes. Away with the atheists, he said. Wow. Okay, well, so you mentioned like a few things about uh, Protestantism that you saw kind of um, weaknesses in the armor, you could say. One was, yeah, how do we worship? The other is, well, what about the authority? And then also like, yeah, how many churches did Jesus start? And I think I, when I read your story, you also mentioned morality, uh, moral issues as well. Let so, me touch on that, the last one. The whole issue of authority, I realized it could not be a book alone because all of us were studying in the Bible right. together and we couldn't come to agreement that you need to have some kind of a tradition. What that means is you have to have a context. That's the best way to put it. When you're studying the Bible, you need a context for mm-hmm. it. You can't read it out of its historical, linguistic, theological context. It's to be read in the heart of the church and the family. It's a family heirloom to be read in the heart of the family where the father can tell you the story more than what's on the words of the page, where mm-hmm. they came from and about the family genealogy. And you need the you need the the father and you need the tradition. That's the scripture tradition and the magisterium. But that that's another topic for another day. But the um, the issue of morality and how many churches kind of go together because today I can drive down Main Street and I, and I do it say it this way: Christians today choose their churches like they choose their restaurants. Mm. You know, we drive down Main Street on Monday afternoon with my wife, and I say, um, "Are you hungry?" There's McDonald's, Burger King, KFC, Pizza Hut. What do you feel like today? She said, "I feel like a pizza." So we pull in and we get a pizza. Tomorrow maybe she'll feel like a hot dog or a hamburger. You know who knows? Sunday morning comes along, we drive down Main Street, and on the other side of the road, there's Baptist, Methodist, Lutheran, Presbyterian, Pentecostal, and I ask her the same question: What do you feel like today? And we pick our churches the same way we pick our restaurants by what Mm. we feel like. What should we be able to do? Do I want to abort? Fine. There's churches that'll let me do that. We even have a president now that'll support that. You have, um, say, I want to contracept. I want to do this. I want two men to get married. Oh, there's churches that'll say, welcome. We, we, we love, love, love you. Come to us. We, we, we're not going to judge your morality. We're not going to put, push our morals down your throat. You can believe whatever you want. Come in here. We're, we're all happy, clappy. We're about Jesus here, not judging you. So you pick your church by what you think your morals should be. Mm-hmm. What do you think you should be able to do and not to do? We pick our churches the same way we pick our restaurants, what we feel like today. How many churches did Jesus start when you were in the early Christians? Did Jesus intend there to be Baptist, Methodist, Lutheran, Presbyterian, Catholic, Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, and all these other groups and isms and cults and factions? No, there was one church. I will build my church. He didn't say I will build my churches. And that's in Matthew 16 and Matthew 18. 
when he talks about if your brother sins against you, well, if your brother sins against you, take it to your brother who doesn't listen to him, take it to two or three more if he doesn't listen to him, and take it to one of the churches. No, he says, take it to the church. Well, what in the world could that mean? In a Protestant world where you have 40,000 denominations, where in the world is the church? There is no such thing. There are the churches. If you're a Baptist and I'm a Methodist and we have a problem, do I go to your Baptist church or do I take it to my Methodist? My church has no authority over you and your church has no authority over me. So it makes a farce of Jesus's words, take it to the church. The church implies that there's going to be one church. It's going to be a government. It's going to be all over the whole face of the earth. So that that one church with an address, which has a visible unity, is the one church all the way across in a unified, visible way across the whole world. Otherwise, it makes a farce of Jesus's words. Mm. It is the church. So I realized that for the first there was always groups that broke away, heretics and so on. But up until the first thousand years, there was always only one church. And mm -hmm. it, had, it had a pope, the father, the papa of the church. And that was the authority. Then in the Eastern church broke away. And for another 500 years, you had those two big divisions, unfortunately, the East and the West, which John Paul II always said, I, I want to get them back together so that the two lungs, the right and left lungs are breathing again, the East and West in one body the body of Christ, not separated, but the two lungs are both back in one body, breathing together again, not separate. And then Martin Luther came along. And if the division between the East and the West wasn't bad enough in the West, he dropped an atomic bomb, which just blew it up into 40,000 or so different denominations now. So how do you, dis how do you know what church to go to? They all have their own unique differences. And if you try to go look at all of those churches and decide which one's the right one and which one's teaching the Bible correctly, good luck. And yeah. I went back and said there was only one church, and it was the Catholic Church. And the word Catholic simply means universal, all the truth for all the people for all of the time. Simple, that's what Catholic means. And that's how Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew ends, go into all the world, teach all the truth to all through all of time, and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, which is the doorway into this church. Mm -hmm. So how could I not become a Catholic? I had yes. to become a Catholic. Otherwise, I'm dishonest with myself. I, my dad told me as a boy, always follow the truth, even if it hurts. Yeah. And I had to become a Catholic. And, and how I did never your, look back. How did your parents and your brothers react to this? Just like that. Have they, they never been open? Our family, for one year, both sides would not talk to us or have anything to do with us. For over a year, we lost all of our friends within two weeks. Because I'm wow. not quiet about things. If I find something right. we're talking about, I believe that. I'm not, I don't go and uh, say, well, I don't want to, you know, better not talk to him. No, I'm going to tell everybody. If I find something good, I'd. So, but a year later, both families came back. Parents. Mm -hmm. um, some in my family have converted now since then. And, wow. But both families came back and were friends again, and um, the hostility was over after a period of time, but we never regained our friends. We started a whole new world of friends. And what was it like when you became Catholic and received the Eucharist for the first time? And how is your... I cried. <laughs> wow. I cried at every Mass for the next six years. Janet and I both did. The first Mass wow. we went to was in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And I remember it was 
here's how the little process goes. And then I'll probably let you go because I'm keeping here too long, but an hour. Uh, but I, after we had been studying these things for a long time, uh, it was New Year's Eve of 1993. Some friends invited us to come to their house. They wanted to save us from our lunacy. They saw what we were reading, the questions we were asking. They also knew that we knew Al Cresta. Mm-hmm. And they were going to get us over for New Year's to try and save us from going down that same uh, road of heresy and schism that Al went down. So when we were there, we were arguing till well after midnight. And I said to him, Jim, do you realize that if you and I were Bible only guys, do you realize that if you and I saw Jesus crucified and raised from the dead, that we would never have read the gospel of St. John? And he says, why not? And I said, because it wouldn't have been written in our lifetime. John didn't write his gospel till the end of the first century. He was a young boy as a disciple. He didn't die until he was old. And it wasn't until almost 100 AD that he wrote that gospel. You and I would have been dead. How would we have known about being born again, Jim? Because in John chapter 3, verse 3, it says you must be born again. If we didn't have that book, how would we know that? I said, Jim, we would have been screwed. Yeah. We didn't have the book, the Bible alone. What's On the way home that night, I said to my wife, Janet, I'm really, this is really getting scary because the more we argue against the Catholic Church, the more I realize we're backing ourselves right in the front door. I'm defending her now. The next day was January 1st, 1994. We had all our books out. It was a quiet day. No work. I couldn't have cared less about football. We had all our books out on the tables and the book we were reading and studying, discussing it together. Two o'clock in the afternoon, I closed all my books. I sat on the living room floor and I started to cry like a baby. Janet says, Steve, what's wrong? I said, Janet, nothing is wrong. I just realized I'm a Catholic. And I called Al Cresta and I said, Al, happy new year. Guess what? I'm a Catholic. And Al Cresta said, what did you just say? I said, I'm a Catholic. He said, you're the last person in the world. I thought I'd ever hear say that. What happened? I said, my pride broke. Mm -hmm. I'm now ready to admit that I'm not the center of everything. I'm not my own Pope. I am going to submit to the authority of Jesus's church that he started 2000 years ago. In other words, like a knight in shining armor galloping through medieval England, when he finds a king in a kingdom worthy of his fealty and loyalty, he gets off his horse and he kneels before the king. And I have found such a king and such a kingdom. Al said to me, well, since you're Catholic now, how'd you like to go to mass with us tomorrow? It was Saturday that day. It's tomorrow, Sunday. How'd you like to go to mass with us? And I it had never dawned on me for two seconds that if I was going to believe and be a, ba- a Catholic in my head, that I'd have to someday go to that Catholic mass. Wow. Well, I said to my wife, I covered the phone. Just a minute, Al. He wants us to go to a mass with him tomorrow. What should I say? My wife says, we'll go, but we're going to leave the kids at home. We want to get there late. We're going to sit in the back row and we're going to leave early. People said, man, you guys are Catholics. We're mural American Catholics from the first day. Wow. <laughs> but we went, and I'll just close out my story with this. This is kind of how I ended in my, when I give my conversion story at conferences and things. We went to that mass, and 
we cried our whole way through the whole thing. When the priest came up, we all turned around. Everybody stood up and turned around like it, it, we do at the mass and the priest was coming up, but we had never done that in Baptist churches. The priest, the pastor's already up in the front. So when he started coming up the aisle, I burst into tears because I looked there and I said, that was, I realized I was looking at an apostolic man. It's the first time I'd ever been in a Catholic church, my wife or I, first time we'd ever met a Catholic priest and the first time we'd ever met Catholics who could explain or defend their faith. I saw him coming up the aisle, I burst into tears, and I, I, was a, I was seeing an apostolic man. I didn't know his name, but I knew exactly who he was. He had been ordained by a bishop who had been ordained by a bishop, by a bishop, by a bishop, all the way back to the apostolic fathers, and Polycarp, and James, and Peter, and Paul, and John, all the way back to Jesus. And I knew what I was looking at, and I cried, wow. and I turned to my wife and looked at her, and she was crying too. I get choked up now talking about it. And we cried at every single mass for the next six years. And when we wow. left that mass, and I, I realized I had a whole vision of the Eucharist. If you want to read it, it's in my book, Crossing the Tiber, because I tell the story of what happened to us that day at mass. Hmm. And when we got up to leave, my wife, her little fish, she's only 105 pounds something. She's very not dangerous, but she was, I'm so angry. Why are you angry? Because I've been lied to by my Protestant past. I've been lied to about the Catholic church, but mm. I'm even angrier at Catholics because they knew the truth and they never told us we were wrong. Wow. And I say to people, if you take that as a challenge, good. Take it as a challenge. We went and saw the priest after, and I said, Father Red, I know your name because I just saw it here in your little bulletin thing you got. And my name is Steve Ray. My wife is Janet. And we just became Catholics yesterday. And he started to say, what? What do you mean you became Catholics yesterday? I said, we did. We've been studying this. And yesterday I started to cry and I said, I'm Catholic. And Janet came and she cried today. And she said, she's Catholic now too. So we want to join the church so we can have Holy Communion next Sunday. And you can you can imagine the rest of the story. Wow, that is amazing, man, Steve. Thank you so much for sharing your story, your journey. You're welcome. And um, yeah, so where can people find you and follow your work? Because it's an amazing thing that you're doing here. CatholicConvert.com. We lead pilgrimages all over the Catholic world. We've been slowed down a little bit by this uh, virus hysteria thing going on, but we're getting back on the road this year. Uh, nice. We got trips planned to Israel and Lords and Fatima and Ireland and St. Paul cruises. So we're getting back in the air, second part of the year. And uh, I got a hundreds and hundreds of conversion stories and free resources on my website. I have my store there where you can buy our movies. They're on sale right now, by the way. You can buy all those nine movies that we made. Abraham, Moses, David, Solomon, Elijah, Elijah, Mary, Peter, Paul, Jesus, Apostolic Fathers, nine of them with study guides all through the lands. We've got those and all my books. And lots of videos, lots of stuff on video wow. too for people to watch. So it's catholicconvert.com, one source for everything for us. Well, thanks, Steve, and God You're bless. You're welcome, Eric. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. You're a good guy. Thanks.
Thank you for listening to a production of WCAT Radio. Please join us in our mission of evangelization. And don't forget, love lifts up where knowledge takes flight.